Well, um, thank you for um, inviting me, and uh, thank you, um, John, for agreeing to take part. The last time uh, I was in a sort of potential conflict situation was um, I was having to do a presentation at his retirement um, at, uh, um, at the TUC at Congress Hall, um, Congress House, and um, this was a sort of this is your life presentation. Now we're hoping to be a little bit more forthright this afternoon than the, um, than the, than the happy gloss of, uh, of that occasion. And of course we've had this morning, um, for me, a very <coughs> fascinating look back at previous General Secretaries, and to think we've actually got a line General Secretary here. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, we can ask... Um, Keep him that way, please. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, of whom we can ask some, um, some, uh, some really pertinent questions, we hope. And of course, there'll be um, question time. I mean, I'm keeping my eye on the clock, so I'll finish uh, leaving a good 10 to 15 minutes Smash for it. questions from the hall. Now, of course, mm -hmm. what we have to remember is that John joined the TUC almost 50 years ago. Um, and, uh, of course, he became the Assistant General Secretary in 1987. And here I'm into headline mode, of course, uh, as, a, as a journalist. Um, uh, this, of course, was in a period when the TUC was moving very much um, towards embracing Europe. We're now talking about 1987, after, of course, having fought the general election in 83 on coming out of Europe. Of course, he becomes General Secretary in 1993, and that's a decade when um, the TUC, which had been relating to the Labour Party in opposition, now is relating to the Labour Party in government. Um, of course, from 2003 to 2011, after his retirement, he becomes the General Secretary of the European uh, Trade Union Confederation. And so I'm fascinated to find out <coughs> how it was that that union enthusiasm that uh, he was so much part of began to wane. How did we get to the position where we are today? And then, of course, um, I think we heard from Paul Novak this morning about the challenges for the TUC on trying to <coughs> recruit young workers, um, the workers in the gig and flexible economy. What does John think uh, of that, and what was the Europe, European experience? But first, let me start by asking you, John. You, you, you rather fascinated me. Um, I did discuss with John the area that I would like to talk about, and I said we'd sort of start off uh, on your young days, what, what, what sort of inspired you. And he said to me, which was rather tantalizing, that he had become very interested in the union movement, the trade union movement, while he was at school. Now, what was it that inspired you? Was it stories like the Toll Puddle Martyrs? What, what were the issues that actually inspired you to take an interest in the trade union movement and that have led to this lifetime's work with the union movement? Yeah, well, it, I was, I share the birthplace uh, of the, with, the, with the TUC in Manchester and we had a, a, a particular history teacher who taught labour history as part of the O-level course. And then, because I liked history, it was part of the A-level course, so I did it twice. And then I did it at university as well, and uh, economic history with a strong trade union element. And also, there were around the city, there were people, I was involved in Labour Party politics. I was a member of the delegate to the Trades Council. I wasn't actually a member of any trade union at the time. <laughs> I don't quite know how that happened. There must have been a reliable vote for somebody. Uh, but I, uh, so I took an interest 
in, uh, 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 an admiring interest in some of the figures of that time. One of whom was Hugh Scanlon. Another one was a guy called Eddie Marsden of the Construction oh, Engineering yes, yes. Union, uh, communist, but, but was a very, very good trade union officer, as I later learned. And these, these, I wouldn't say they were heroes, but they were people I admired and respected. It never occurred to me that I'd ever get a job with a trade union. I didn't feel qualified to work for a trade union. Until I got a job uh, in the electronics industry in Surrey. And that was at Plessy, wasn't it? At it Wayne was. Bridge. a member of uh, ASTMS uh, mm. and the Kingston branch, I remember, a big, a big branch at that time. Uh, and, and it was a dispute, was it, at Plessy that actually triggered that enthusiasm of earlier years? Well, it, 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 it led to a change of life and direction in my life in that there was, uh, in those days, you could get out of a contract only on two conditions. One was an act of God and the second was a labour dispute. And the, the, I was responsible for seeing through a contract for the Australians on radar and we were going to be two weeks late with this contract because EMI, the record company, were very clever inventors of things and they had some clever equipment that, which they were going to be two weeks late to us on. So I told this to the production manager. He said, that's £50,000 penalty we're going to have to pay. He said, leave it with me. I'm going to find a way out of this. I came in on the following Monday and there was a picket line for me. <laughs> I, had a, I thought, oh, yeah, I, know I had a word with one of the uh, pickets. Went in, uh, he told me that the convener had been sacked, uh, an AU convener, and uh, I went in to see O'Connor. I said, have you done what I think you've done? And he laughed and he said, yeah. I said, what happened about all that partnership talk that we've been giving the workforce and so on? And he said, grow up. Uh, this is business. Uh, right. So I, then I thought, but, I can't but, work here. But, well, it whetted your appetite, didn't it? Because I think I remember this from your This Is Your Life occasion, that it was the man who was to become your best man, Roger, who uh, worked for the Labour Party, who encouraged you to join yeah, well, the TUC. It, it, this, this, this guy had been a co-student of mine in the same course, and he'd ended up at the Labour Party. And I thought, well, if he can get a job at the Labour Party, maybe I can get a job in the union. ASTMS turned me down. Uh, <laughs> a two-minute interview with Clive Jenkins, by the way, after lunch, as I later learned. <laughs> it was a very bad time to be in to, to see Clive Jenkins. Uh, the, question, the interview went, uh, I think the, the chairman of the executive asked me, you know, what did my dad do and put me at ease and so on. Answered that, and then the general secretary came in and said, um, "How much collective bargaining experience have you got?" I said, "No, I'm applying for the trainee one. I put on the form exactly exactly what my experience is." He said, "I didn't read your form. <laughs> this was in front of the whole of the executive." And the uh, I said, "Is there any point in continuing this interview?" He said, "None at all." Um, so I went out, uh, and Muriel Turner. The assistant general secretary came running after me, said, oh, don't cause any trouble with the branch. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought, I've had some experience of business. I've had a not a very good experience <laughs> with the trade union world. But then I saw a job at the TUC about production management. Somebody who knew a bit about production management. And half the price I was getting, wage I was getting at Plessy. 
and I applied, and of course there weren't too many people who did apply. No. And the rest is history. The rest is history. Right. Now, what, what was your impression then? We've had this fascinating morning this morning, yeah. looking back at former TUC General Secretary. What was your impression of the hierarchy within Congress House when you arrived? Well, it was by far the toughest environment that I'd come across. It was, the head of department was a guy called Ken Graham, some of you will remember, uh, and he, he was a sergeant major, and he ran it like that. Uh, you had to work very, very hard. He was merciless if anything had gone wrong. Uh, he was, uh, he sacked people who he didn't, he didn't uh, think were making the grade. He was quite, uh, he, in fact, I had, um, after about three months, something I'd done, he thought was absolute rubbish. I think he was right, by the way. And he, he said to my wife-to-be, your husband-to-be, better pull his socks up or you won't be working here much longer. He was, <laughs> he was rough, he was tough. Uh, but he was a very good trainer, uh, as those of us who survived <laughs> would say. Some didn't survive. Um, but the, the atmosphere was the same with Len, it's not quite the same, but similar with Len Murray. Uh, and these, these were a, a key, key people. The General Secretary, not, not quite to the extent of uh, Chris's remarks about uh, George Woodcock and the lift earlier, but the General Secretary was quite a remote figure. People called each other Mr. This and Mr. That, and it was a very traditional civil service, I think, type atmosphere. And the civil service, Citrine, I think, brought in civil service type mentality into the TUC. So you had to be able to work on paper, which saw a lot of experienced trade union people not make it because they were more verbal, if they hadn't been to university anyway, they were more verbal than they were good, uh, quick accurate writers, uh, and that was the, the ethos. Now take us back to the actual period, because if you're, you're joining in 69, we have of course the 1970 general election, um, uh, we then have of course Ted Heath losing uh, for the Conservatives in the 1974 general election, we then have the Labour government in power, so w what was the Labour scene like uh, during that qu quite momentous period of, of change? Well, it was very exciting for a start. It was, I mean, it was the TUC on a big upswing. We didn't really know it at the time, but with the uh, Campaign Against the Industrial Relations Act, it was far more successful than anybody ever thought it would be. Um, and, of course, it was partly, partly that, but more particularly probably the miners' strike of 72. That's and 74. Uh, well, first of 72, yeah. which caused Edward Heath to swing yeah. round. Yeah and become rather interested in the TUC as a corporate body. He was probably, became as enthusiastic, if not more so, than any Labour uh, Prime Minister of my time uh, in, in a, a corporate approach. And he did try, uh, and uh, years later, when we had a celebration of the new unionism, he came to a dinner at the uh, an entertainment at the TUC. One or two of you might remember him coming. And I, I sat with him for a while, and he said, I always wanted to get on really well with the TUC. And he said, I made a mistake in my early years, uh, but I tried to put it right, but it was too late. And I ran into the National Union of Mine Workers. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, so it was a very exciting time. At the same time, there were all these tripartite bodies, Health and Safety Commission, Manpower Services Commission being created, and that was sort of in the bit I was working in at that particular time. So it, it was a fast atmosphere, big learning curve for me, uh, and a tremendous opportunity for somebody young and enthusiastic. Now, if you look at uh, the 74 general election and the return of the Labour government and that period, I mean, I always remember looking through the uh, uh, annual report, the TUC annual reports, and seeing how union membership was going up and up and up because it's going to end, isn't it, in 1979-80 with 12 million members. Yeah. Now, partly, of course, on the back of the, 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 the nationalised industries. Uh, what, what was that sort of period like then? Because it must have been absolutely exhilarating to see that massive increase in trade union membership. Yeah, we, we, it was. We, we didn't really know why it was happening quite. It just was. I, seem to rem I think I remember somebody saying it was like fish throwing themselves on the banks. Administrative systems in some unions could barely cope with the influx of members. And the interesting thing was, union unpopularity, as measured by the polls, was going up, and membership was going up at the same time. Yeah. Which, uh, 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 we've since become a lot more popular, but membership has gone down. No, no, uh, no, no, no I'm going to interrupt you just there, because you see, you've immediately said that the unions have got no idea why this was happening. That, these, these yeah. people were flocking to the union movement. Now, I would uh, counter that by saying, but hang on a minute, it was due to Chekhov. Now, I, I had lots of conversations with Michael Foote um, uh, 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 after uh, Labour's defeat, um, you know, uh, and um, as after the Labour defeat, and um, he, he, he used to say to me that Chekhov was the thing that he was proudest of. This was the fact that, that, um, uh, that in the nationalised industries, you, you, you had almost, uh, because of Chekhov, because um, your union subs were uh, um, deducted at source, and you had to become a union membership, it was like, like the closed shop. And he said that was his greatest achievement. Now, to me, it would strike me that was the reason why actually you hit the top figure of 12 million in 7980? Yeah, I, I'd, I'd put it a bit broader than Chekhov, because Chekhov had been around in some areas before then. But it hadn't been as compulsory. I mean, it well, was, it, this it is was the point. It, you, uh, th this was the union shop type agreements that came in quite strongly in the 70s or were extended. They were there before in some places because we had a basic voluntary system. And I don't remember Michael Foote actually playing the, uh, the law, playing a particular role in spreading the union shop but it, it was part of the the mood of the time that unions needed to be accommodated brought in to share responsibility for tackling the enormous particularly inflationary problem of the british economy uh which uh, i mean you know in 74 inflation touched 26 percent but Chekhov, you see was seen by the right uh, by the conservative right as something that had to be got rid of because it enforced the closed shop. That was that was their original target. I mean, I can remember going um, countless sort of interviews with um, uh, conservative MPs on the right and them seeing Chekhov as something we've got to stop because as w w we're not going to let that continue once there's a conservative government. Well, yeah, well, they didn't. Chekhov itself was not touched until <coughs> this century. Um, the closed shop union membership. Was 
agreements were was touched for sure um, but you can still do check off provided you've got so much support and so on and all that um, and the, the sharper ones amongst them I think did see the importance of of inertia it's a bit like contracting out versus yeah. contracting in of the, on the political levy if the inertia is in your favor that people have got to find a way out uh, of uh, paying the levy or the union subs it's certainly in your favor did, did I'm not saying it's not a factor it did is that a inertia factor. did that inertia though you just mentioned it the inertia on the unions was that something that was actually going to be um, a handicap for the trade union movement did the fact that they that, that it had been so easy for them actually I don't think it, the, Nick, uh, I don't the, think the, it was ever that easy I mean there was no. a brief period and I, I think it's got a lot to do with inflation mm -hmm. and differentials actually why right. pe, pe, I mean particularly the growth of white-collar trade unionism in that that era uh, in unions like SCMS it was people trying to keep their differential over the shop floor, which was rather more militant and pushing for rises. And I think inflation played a, a big part in it. But, well, I mean, adjusting to all the legal changes that have come in since 79 has been a real real headache and, uh, and has cost us a lot of members, there's no doubt. Change gear then. Uh, what is your take now, looking back on the lead up to 1979 and the... Uh, winter discontent? Well, f for me, that, I mean, there's two big failures in the TUC's 20th century history. One is the general strike, mm -hmm. uh, which was a disaster. Uh, I mean, it's remembered, because it's a long time ago, as a semi-heroic terms, but it was a disaster for thousands of people who got victimized and who got penalized. I mean, Norman Willis's dad was a barber at the Hyde Park Hotel. He was the only one who went on strike. He was out of work for the next two years. He was a barber. He couldn't even get one with the local barbers in Staines. The word went out and so on. Ken Graham, who I've, I've already mentioned, his father was a Cumbrian miner. Two years out of work after the general strike and the collapse of the miners' strike. And uh, the British Legion helped him move to Bournemouth, where he wasn't known, and he got a job there. So the, these are just two stories among many of uh, the people who paid the price and we paid the price in a catastrophic membership for which I'd say is, is highly relevant to the future mm -hmm. because we overcame that when a lot of people were saying you can't mm -hmm. and I think the, we need to, the history should be vivid in our minds that our predecessors did overcome in very difficult circumstances some of the challenges they face and the challenge for Paul and Francis and leaders of unions and so on, is in this generation is to do the same thing as our predecessors did. Mm. And what about the winter discontent? What were the, as you saw it, did you see the the seeds of of that confrontation coming and the fact that this could be the the denouement of the of the Labour government? Uh, did we see it coming? We knew the risks. We were. It, it was the the social contract was built on fairly fragile foundations. We weren't, uh, we weren't sure even what to call it, were we, at the time, whether it was a social compact, a social contract, or what. Uh, some people didn't like social contract uh, because of some uh, historical associations with that, that particular term. I th think Mussolini might have used it at one stage and so on as well. 
So people didn't like it much, but still it was there. Um, and uh, the pressure in the labour market, it's certainly the idea that the union, the TUC was party to holding down your wages, holding down your pay increases at a time when, for, as ever, profits get announced in the paper that are sky high and so on. It was uncomfortable. It was difficult. It must have been much more difficult for an officer in the front line than it was for a, a bureaucrat at the TUC at the time. But, uh, so we knew it was fragile and we also knew there was inter-union competition. Uh, which uh, played a part, particularly in the public sector, with one union trying to score over another union in terms of membership. And I think that played a part uh, in the collapse of the social contracts in the so-called winter of discontent. Uh, we found ourselves without any levers really to pull. Uh, a nasty dispute first started in road haulage and petrol drivers, then road haulage, and then the public sector. Yeah. And uh, that, that was the game was up then. And in a sense, we lost our chance, continuing the theme of this morning, to be a social democratic movement. Uh, to, the social contract was a noble attempt at sweet, you know, getting ourselves to be more Swedish, Dutch, or Austrian, or yeah. German, and so on. And it failed. And then we were vulnerable and so was the Labour Party. And what about the way in which the right and especially the uh, tabloid newspapers look back to the winter of discontent? That is the moment, you know, they've been resurrecting the pictures, um, for example, in some of the uh, uh, predictions as to what would happen if we had another Labour government, that we would be back to the winter of discontent. What, what do you think of the way those myths uh, were created. Who do you blame for creating the myths about it? Was it was it the journalists? Was it the media? Was it the conservatives? I don't blame particularly the media for it. I mean, you've got to look honestly at it. It was a massive failure, um, and we've been paying the price ever since. It didn't just influence uh, people on the right. I can remember um, a, a meeting where Tony Blair came into the General Secretary's office when I was General Secretary, looked round and said, is this the TUC trophy room? I said, what do you mean, trophy room, Tony? He said, uh, where's the head of Wilson and Callaghan? And he said, you're not going to get my head up there. Oh. <laughs> uh, so that, that, in a sense, was a, 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 a portent of things to come that it influenced a lot of people in the Labour Party, or some people in the Labour Party, as well as others in other, other parties, uh, to see the, the unions as something of an, a, a foe, an enemy even, uh, who had to be contained and not trusted uh, to share in partnership in the government. Well, building on that theme of, uh, of uh, enemy, uh, if we can think of uh, 1979 and the defeat um, of Callaghan, um, the first union conference was the biennial of the Transport and General Workers Union at Scarborough. And of course this is in the days before mobile phones and I'm in this phone box outside that pavilion in Scarborough and they're saying, uh, look here Nick, you've got to get the lead for the morning. Uh, T&G are just meeting. They say they've got two million, two million members. Um, they're going to be leading the fight back against Mrs Thatcher. You're the lead story. So I thought, oh blimey. And I went round 
um, talk to all of the union leaders I could speak to, Moss Evans and everybody else, and I, 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 they just didn't seem, they couldn't give me a, a thought as to about how they were going to fight Thatcher. They didn't seem to think, you know, they were sort of caught in a, in a, in, in a moment of sort of catastrophe. What, what would you have, what was your feeling then? Hmm? Uh, uncertainty. Uh, <laughs> we knew we were going to have a period on the defensive. Um, I mean, the, it was a bit more complicated with the Tories than that because you had the Jim Pryor. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which was remembering the, the, the Heath era and was thinking, well, maybe we, uh, you know, we, we can do a deal here of some kind. We'll do some minor changes to trade union law uh, just to satisfy the, the, the Conservative Party. But we won't do much um, and we'll work together with the unions as best we can. And there was, there was a whole posse of them, including Chris Patton, who was sent forth to talk to people and, uh, uh, and try and get this message across. Uh, it was the TUC was confident enough to totally reject this. By the way, uh, we didn't give it, hardly gave them the time of day. Um, yeah. But we, uh, and I think that was not true of all unions, but it was true of quite a lot of unions at that time. Probably in retrospect, not the wisest thing we ever did. But the we we we, we knew we were in for some battles, but we were pretty confident, actually, that industrially we might well score some goals and possibly get them onto the, the, into the same position as Edward Heath ended up. But if we look at the, the disputes, the big disputes of the Thatcher decade, they started pretty quickly, didn't they? I mean, the 1980 steel workers strike that went on for 13 weeks, the British Leyland disputes, all the rail disputes, leading on, of course, to the miners' strike. And one has to say that for industrial hacks like me, John, that was our decade. Not really. <laughs> <laughs> well, finest hour. Um, um, I, I know, I know, I, I know it hurts, but what, yeah. what, what, what happened? So if we just begin that decade, you, you, so you're thinking then that you could actually make, make, make some progress. At the start of it, I mean, uh, at the start of it, yes. And then uh, came, I would say, the, the key trade union act by Thatcher Tebbit. The one of nineteen of eighty two, nineteen eighty two, and this was the one that held unions legally responsible for the actions right. of their mm. officials, shop stewards included. And I think, I mean, if you, some of you are there, uh, remember the Wembley conference, where, which was raising the banner of defiance, mm. as we were going to, uh, if didn't quite say break the law. But that was in, probably implicit in a lot of the speeches that took place. But there was a, there was a sort of uh, revivalist atmosphere, a sense that we were going to uh, see off this legislation like we'd seen off the Industrial Relations Act of Edward Heath. So there was still a lot of confidence in the, uh, uh, in the trade union world. And that first got a battering in the uh, messenger dispute with Eddie Shah in Stockport and Warrington, whatever it was up there, uh, and so on, which, where the TUC had to make a, a Len Murray in particular, had to give the lead, uh, are we going to break the law and risk the sequestration of all the union's assets, uh, and so on, and the answer by no. a narrow majority was no, no. Mm -hmm. and some relief on the other side, by the way, uh, 
quietly expressed. Now you mentioned Len Murray, of course, because he's in charge at the start of the miners' strike. Yeah. And of course, um, to me, that was the sort of moment I can vividly remember um, the Toll Puddle Martyrs sort of celebration in the in the summer of '84, uh, and uh, it was clearly then that I think he, he must, Len Murray must have realised that the likelihood of a negotiated settlement was receding. Um, and uh, I remember he had a sort of slight heart flutter or he did, something yeah. happened. And that seemed to be the moment that he, he, he began to disengage. You, you, well, you, you, I mean, you paint the picture as you saw uh, the start of the miners' strike. Well, partly because of the left experience over the messenger dispute, Scargill and the left group, <coughs> left group didn't want the TUC involved at, at all, all. No. in the coal mining dispute. And so there were various polite conversations on the phone between Peter Heathfield, General Secretary of the NUM, and Len Murray uh, for months. Uh, I think the strike started about March. In March. Mm -hmm. And uh, so up to September, it was all polite. Uh, we don't need your help. We're getting on with it. And then the, uh, come in the, con the Congress come in, then it was clear Scargill was going to come in all guns blazing, blazing. looking mm -hmm. for full, unconditional support. support. Mm -hmm. um, and there was a negotiated uh, deal, which someone unkindly uh, uh, described as the TUC wrote a blank cheque, but forgot to sign it. Uh, <laughs> and it was a bit of fudging, I guess. I think I wrote it in telling the <laughs> truth. Um, uh, at uh, 11 o'clock at night in the hotel in Brighton. And um, it was, uh, and then the TUC was engaged in two ways. One, trying to raise money for the miners' communities, a hardship fund. And secondly, uh, trying to promote an agreed settlement. That was, that was the way we interpreted it, and we worked very hard on that, and to no avail. Uh, and it, again, that was a seminal dispute. One thing Arthur Scarley was completely right about, that a defeat for the miners was a defeat for everybody, and it was. And it relegated us down the league table of organisations of considerable national yeah. importance. Yeah. Now, I, I'm an if-only man, you know, if only there'd been uh, the possibility of a negotiated settlement. Uh, you know, a lot of people said we might have hung on to some of our great successes in the coal industry. You know, they were just at the beginning of developing clean burning, carbon capture, all of those developments. Yeah. Um, do you think that a, a, a leader other than Scargill, like a Joe Gormley figure who worked so closely with Lord Ezra, do you think he would have got a way out of that strike? I, 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 there was an inevitability uh, that the, of, there was going to be conflict between the miners' union and the Conservative government, I think. There are plenty of warriors on both sides who thought that they should be a repeat of the 72-74 uh, actions, but in the in Nigel Lawson's of this world, were looking for a victory over a powerful political enemy mm -hmm. uh, that they needed to clear out of the way to do a lot of other things that they wanted to do. At least I'm, I, I, that's, I've always had that impression. But obviously Arthur Scargill brought his own stamp to it. And looking back on it, if only we could have 
done what every other Western European country's managed to do, which was run down its coal industry in a pretty civilized way, as we've done in other industries, negotiated settlements. Uh, the West Germans agreed that they would close a coal mine a year, and each coal mine would have a proper social and industrial plan around it. So the rural has got none of the look of Grimethorpe and places like that in Yorkshire or the South Wales coal fields, it, it, it looks you know, much more like the south of England. And uh, it's, uh, we, the fact that we couldn't do that does owe something to the intransigence of the leaders on both sides. Mm -hmm. Now, we're going to have to move on from looking back to the chapter we're going to begin to look forward. Now, <coughs> of course, the 1980s, the late 1980s, were when um, the TUC was warmly embracing Europe. I mean, the famous uh, Jacques Delors uh, yeah. visit to the Bournemouth Conference. Uh, <coughs> who was who was in the driving seat? Was it was it the TUC which saw the benefits of um, union cooperation across Europe? Was it individual unions? How did it begin? Because of course it was going to have a profound influence, wasn't it, on the Labour Party? Well, it was. I mean, we didn't know at the time when we embarked on it. Um, they, they basically, um, I think Norman Willis and David Lee, another Assistant General Secretary at the time had heard uh, Jack Delors give a speech at the European Trade Union Confederation about social Europe, that this single market was going to have social rules. And those rules could be set by the social partners bargaining autonomously from the government. Only would the European authorities, the Commission in particular, move if no agreement could be reached. But the European Commission would suggest subjects that should be covered by an agreement. And if the employers wouldn't uh, make an agreement, then there was the threat of law at European level behind it. And when they sat listening to this in Thatcher's Britain, the defeat mm. of the miners, the dockers in Dover, the, uh, the dockers on the dock labour scheme had gone, whopping had uh, just finished, and so on. When they were looking, they thought, looking for the new things to do obviously as well this looks a very attractive vision and that proved to be when Delors came and delivered it, it, it same eight, sort of thing. the 1988 1988 Congress it proved uh, a surprisingly uh, powerful message stand innovations and mm. so on people singing Frere Jaca I remember and uh, and so on. Um, it was creating the atmosphere that led to the uh, Up Yours Delors headline on well, the Sunday. Well, I mean, it, it was, in a way, it was the TUC's <laughs> finest uh, of that, that decade because Mrs. Thatcher was watching it. It was on BBC Two. And uh, she said, I'm not having that man reintroduce <coughs> socialism into this country when I've abolished it. And of course, it was just shortly before her famous Bruges speech. And it triggered the Bruges speech three weeks mm. after the TUC yeah. speech by the law. Bruce speech was before. Are you sure? I've always. I, I thought it was three weeks afterwards, but no. Okay, well, we'll, 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 we'll disagree we'll, we'll on that, but we'll check it. We'll check it. We'll consult the, the, the timeline. We'll Google it. Hmm? Yeah, we'll check that. But the timeline. Uh, anyway, she she was infuriated, as I understand yeah. it, by that speech, yeah, that's and uh, she uh, 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 then took <laughs> steps that Geoffrey Howe. 
uh, reacted strongly against and, and others in the Conservative Party. Uh, and that led to a downfall sometime later in the, as Prime Minister and as leader of the Conservatives. Now, of course, you um, become the, the General Secretary in 1993. Yeah. And, of course, uh, John Major has just been re-elected in 1992. And you're beginning to sort of deal with those final years, aren't you, of the John Major government. Did you sense then that... Uh, the victory of New Labour as it was going to be in 1997. I mean, did you sense that that was already uh, like a foregone conclusion way back when you took over as General Secretary? No, not, not, a, not a foregone conclusion. I mean, I had, um, like John Smith very much, but the, I had no terrific confidence after 1992 when we expected to win, to win. You didn't. Uh, that we could put our faith in the Labour government uh, winning a, a Labour Party winning an election, and so I, I was trying to open up lines with the, the Conservative government and find the priorites of the of the modern era: uh, David Hunt, St uh, Stephen Dorrell, people like that. Heseltine a bit on some things, but very political man. I see in the Guardian at the weekend him saying that he regrets. Uh, their industrial slash and burn policies. Mm -hmm. John Major saying the same thing About in the northeast yeah. uh, last week at some lecture at David Miliband mm -hmm. asked That's him right. to deliver. Um, but the uh, uh, so I was said so we've got to get on with the government of the day. That's the TUC's job. The Labour Party's got his job, but we can't just put all our eggs in the Labour Party basket. Yeah. We've got to find our make our own way as best we can, and our own way wasn't Scargillism, it wasn't militancy uh, particularly, the British economy was struggling, it was after the crash out of the ERM and uh, we were in a recession, um, we had to make our way and partnership with employers was, those employers with whom we could be partners, something John, John Edmonds and others uh, were particularly associated with, developing that agenda. Uh, I enthusiastically embraced that and, and supported it. Now, when Blair gets elected uh, in 1997, and of course he's an extremely, has an extremely pro-European stance, wants to, uh, and hopes that the UK could join the Euro, where were you, um, and where was the TUC at that point? Um, were well, you full square behind Tony Blair? Well, we were never full full square behind Tony Blair because he wasn't full square behind us. But um, uh, I've made that earlier uh, earlier remark. But I mean, it's worth remembering, uh, as one or two of us found out, that he'd given an assurance to the CBI that there wouldn't be any new employment legislation from Europe that he didn't that they didn't agree with. Right. That was done in 1996 to Adair Turner. And, um, uh, you know, you, you take these things in your stride, you carry on, and you think, well, we can change that in due course. But he was basically saying that the minimum wage, trade union recognition, and signing the existing social measures of Europe was, was the lot. There was no new stuff to come. He needed to be business friendly. He needed to be uh, winning the middle ground. The unpopular trade unions were not, helping trade unions was not a popular vote winner. Uh, I 
said, I think, that, uh, round about that time, that we treated a bit like embarrassing elderly relatives. <coughs> was that the moment then when there was a slight disenchantment beginning to build up within the trade union well, about, about the relationship with Europe? There was uh, disenchantment in quite a lot of places in the trade union, but there was also tremendous support for Tony Blair and tremendous uh, respect for the fact that mm. this guy was a winner. Uh, he was popular, he was scoring goals against the Conservatives. Uh, they looked tired and exhausted, he looked fresh and new. Uh, the economy was beginning to go quite well. Um, London financial services were booming uh, and so on. And, you know, the, there was a lot of support uh, for what, uh, for fear of the alternative for one thing. Uh, but also a recognition that this guy was not going to be a new Atlee uh, in terms of building the kind of social dimension to the country either here or through Europe that we'd hoped. Now, when we get to 2003 and you leave the TUC and you move to the ETUC, what were the sort of factors in your mind that influenced that, that, that decision? Uh, first of all, that you were going to leave the TUC and that you were going to um, spend what, another eight years and that would be with the <coughs> ETUC. Well, I, I wasn't looking to leave the TUC at all, um, but the, the general secretary, then general secretary of the ETUC came to ask me if I'd be interested in moving across, <laughs> knowing that I'm you know, very pro-European. I was, for example, pro-Britain joining the Euro. Uh, I, I still wish that Britain could hold its currency along with the other northern European economies and not have to devalue every 10 years or so, as we seem to have to do. I think that's a pretty humiliating economic uh, uh, outlook that we've had. Um, uh, so I, I was, I'd always been interested in the European TUC and if there was anywhere I would consider leaving the TUC for, it was there. Um, my wife's Dutch, uh, so it's not it's not a foreign land to us. Yeah. Uh, and it was, it was, it was and what was, what was what were the driving factors in that job then, and how has it coloured your judgment about what's happened in Brexit? Well, of course, I, I, I got to I got to um, uh, Brussels. I started a tour of introducing myself, and I met a very senior official. I better not name. Um, and he said, why have you come? I said, well, we're going to advance, we're going to keep pressing to advance social Europe. He said, mate, the law retired some years ago. Uh, there's nobody else going to be pressing that. He said, and one of the reasons for that is what the mood in London. Because uh, Tony Blair was a st political superstar, not just of Britain, but of Europe in 2003. He'd won these elections good majorities. Third way, social democracy was the way to go. Virtually all of them thought that, uh, the politicians. And it was, um, uh, and that, it was, and you know, Europe had too much regulation already. Uh, as Chancellor Merkel has put it more recently, we've got 50% of the world's welfare states and 25% of its economy, with mm. figures somewhere around about there. Uh, and that feeling that it, Asia was on the up, Europe was on the down, America was on the up, uh, Europe was struggling in productivity, didn't have the new electronic 
uh, technologies of Silicon Valley and so on, didn't have the cheap manufacturing of uh, Asia. Uh, and that, that, so we, we didn't want more regulation, we didn't want more welfare, we didn't want more union power. Mm. But you, I mean, you stuck the job for eight years, didn't you, until 2011? Yeah. Well, we had a couple of breakthroughs on um, part-time workers and agency workers. Uh, and, and those were still feeding through to the UK, weren't they? No, uh, absolutely. The and uh, they were hard fought, mm. mostly in, the, in, in Westminster. Uh, other countries were going along with them and deserting the, uh, uh, the New Labour banner. Uh, on each of those. That was a tough, tough one. Fighting a, what was called the Balkerstein Directive, which would have liberalised all services, um, and to the, uh, uh, allowing them to be set at the level of the lowest, uh, was another one. Um, from, from your Brussels perspective then, what was your take on what was happening in this country? Because, I mean, we were seeing, weren't we, uh, on the left and in many in the union movement, a sort of sense of growing disenchantment about Europe, which led, of course, to the half-hearted um, campaign well, to remain. The, the, the European, I mean, I've only sort of, since the, thinking a lot about it, since the referendum, the 40 years of hardly anybody uh, making a consistent case for Europe in Britain and 40 years of the Express, the Mail, the Sun, and so on, ridiculing it at every, every turn and never stressing the positive points or giving any credit to it, has, has, has seeped into the marrow of so much of our culture and so much of our population. Um, and only when we haven't got it will people realise just what we've lost and what, we've, what, what we're going to miss uh, very much. Were you... Were you Shocked by the fact that um, the, the Labour Party did seem half-hearted uh, during the Brexit campaign and are still uh, split. Well, I, I, I wasn't surprised uh, because you know Jeremy Corbyn's never disguised his views on Europe. Um, Seamus Mills never disguised his his views on Europe, um, and Andrew Murray likewise, and they were at the heart of it. I was. Uh, brought into the Labour campaign that Alan Johnson led, and we couldn't get press statements out. We, things like that. They were uh, they were they were altered by Seamus in particular, um, and they came back after the uh, the due date of publication of the whatever we, the journals we were aiming at. It was a real disaster. Uh, we, it, it was a malfunctioning campaign. Um, and uh, it was unclear exactly for quite a lot of the campaign where the leader of the Labour Party stood. Um, so there was an ambivalence about the whole thing from the start. We've got, in my last few minutes, um, uh, the, the last question I'd like to touch on is where we began this morning, when we had Paul Novak, who was explaining the moves that the TUC is making to try to encourage young workers, workers in the gig economy, and he was talking about a pilot scheme called Work Smart. Double barrel question, did you learn anything in Europe about how Europe is trying to engage young workers? And secondly, why do you think it is that the British trade union movement has still failed to get a breakthrough in, in recruiting workers in those um, flexible industries and jobs? Well, we're not the only ones struggling with this problem. There's many, in many countries, they're struggling with it. 
The one success area, one that doesn't get much uh, coverage in this country, is Belgium. And the Belgian trade unions, are in, they've got a collective bargaining coverage of about 80%. They, I don't know what the, the, this year's figure is in terms of membership, but when I left it, it was, it was over 70%. And the, their essential strength is what some people call the Ghent model, in that they are responsible for uh, paying out unemployment benefit and some other benefits. And if you become unemployed, you, cannot, you, can't, you, you don't have to be a union member, but you can go, to, if you are a union member, you can go to a, a, an office in every, any town with more than about four or 5,000 people, and there'll be a union office, and they'll pay it out. Uh, if you're not a union member, you can get on the train and go to Brussels, or go to Antwerp, do, do, and do, do the Belgian, Liège, and that's about it. Do the know? Belgian unions have the same problem, which Paul touched on, which was the inter-union rivalry, because yeah. as someone who's um, a, a Labour reporter, I remember in uh, 1988 and 1989 um, doing stories about how the TUC was thinking about how you could crack something like McDonald's and, and get union membership in, in those industries. And 30 years later, we, we, we still seem to be in the same position. So did Belgium have some answer to this problem of... Uh, for example, union rivalry, where you can't... It's got union rivalry <coughs> between Catholic, Socialist and Liberal, which for, for mm. Liberal read Conservative in British terms, they've all got a trade union centre and they compete for members. The biggest one is the Christians, which I must say, from my perspective, I thought was a terrific union. Um, a very pragmatic one, with a, and with, it got agreements with Microsoft, with Amazon, McDonald's, I don't know uh, whether it got anywhere with them. Uh, the one it was struggling with was Ryanair. Uh, but making sure Ryanair now it's changed its policy yeah. is getting yeah. a rough ride. Um, uh, because they went to Charleroi and wouldn't recognise the, uh, the union. Now, before, before we open it up to everyone, um, what, what, what would um, your, your final thought be as we approach the cliff edge? Um, Brexit. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I, I, I'm, I don't think there'll be an agreement. Uh, you don't? No, I don't think. Oh, there may be some deferment of some of the issues, um, but I don't see any way around the Irish border question. I think it's intractable uh, if Britain leaves the single market. Uh, I'm one of those saying, well, for the time being, we should go the, uh, the, the EFTA-EEA route along with Norway and co and stay with uh, the single market. I'm terrified that outside the single market, the car industry, the aerospace industry, and probably some more that are not so well known, will suffer. So I, uh, and we'll lose jobs and we'll lose plants. I hope that's not true, but that's my fear. And where's your money? A general election or people's vote? Um, I think the general election is on the cards. Uh, mm -hmm. I really do. Um, right. And I think there, I, I'd like to think that we could, another referendum would come along, but I wouldn't bet any money mm -hmm. that necessarily anybody's going to change their mind significantly. It only needs one or two percent, I know, but I don't know which way they'd go. Fascinating. A seasoned journalist, what a point to stop John predicting a general election possibly quite soon.